This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 16th, 2022, and this is episode 294. I'm Scott Lundbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the money laundering inquiry is done. Does anyone actually still care? I don't know. Seems like it landed with a whimper. And we have a roundup of national and other stories, because I think we've both been just too busy to really deep dive into anything for quite a while. But we're here to talk. So thank you, patrons, for continuing to support the show. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's get into it. It was everyone's fault. It was no one's fault. The Cullen Commission report is out. It's big. It's 1,800 pages. I don't think anyone's been able to fully digest it yet. Even like the government who's had it for, I think, a week or so. Yeah, so they got it on the 3rd, and they had to release it basically right after the net cabinet meeting, which happened on Wednesday, I believe, and came out. Yeah, kind of like you alluded to at the start of the show, it's hefty, but didn't really seem to cause the excitement that I think we thought it would back when this thing started. There's a lot in there. They are calling takes a pretty detailed look at a lot of things, but... I think smoking gun people were looking for is absent here. It's critical of the roles that various ministers and premiers have played in this, as well as a bunch of the structures out there. But there's no like definitive, this person was corrupt and therefore we had a money laundering problem. But I think a lot of people were wanting to see, or at least thought there was out there. To, it doesn't manage to put a solid number on the scale of the problem. It does flag that billions of dollars, there's strong evidence to believe that billions of dollars were flowing through the province each year, or at least over a billion in illicit funds. But because they were illegal, untracked money, who knows how much went through our casinos and everything. And yeah, it ends up being one of these defaceted systemic failures where there's no like obvious like you say, and so was corrupt, other than like the criminals deliberately and intentionally laundering money, but just a lot of shrugs, a lot of regulatory failures, policing failures, governments not taking things seriously, like up and down, like the BC Lottery Commission gets a lot of fault here, law enforcement gets a lot of fault. Some of that is Cullen blames the scaling back of the RCMP's special investigations unit that was supposed to look at money laundering. Not having that, it turns out, allows a lot of money laundering to happen. And later it talks about politicians and it says Rich Coleman didn't do enough. And especially when Christy Clark was in, there were hints that things were bad, but no one took them seriously enough. But there's no evidence that they were of corrupt mind about it, which... All right, so it's negligence and incompetence rather than they were stuffing their own pockets, which outside, I think, the most virulent Twitter fringe, no one was like, clearly, they're just like, in on it. There was the suggestion that was floating out there, and I think, I can't recall, but I think David Eby and a few of the other 
uh, the MLAs back when they were in opposition were pretty happy to float this, or at least uh, nod in its direction that the government was willing to look the other way on this, not out of personal benefit, but just because it was resulting in a fair bit of revenue for the province on that. And this report doesn't debunk that. Yeah, it doesn't debunk it, but neither does it like solidly land that, okay, that was why it was happening. Just like a, yeah, everyone messed up and messed up in some bad ways, but it doesn't really, like I said, have the smoking gun that I think people are looking for. The report also then, because it because the inquiry started not immediately after the NDP got into power, it manages to look at some of the initial actions they did and also flags that kind of like the last days of the Clark government when they started taking a lot of things more seriously, like housing prices and things like that. Not They didn't have enough time to do anything and they're taking it seriously was like, we're going to do a foreign buyer's tax. They had some of the same actions on money laundering where some stuff was starting there and then the NDP really had to start ramping things up and they get praised for that. The Peter German report and the recommendations out of that being implemented are largely seen as positive and helping stem the flow. Nevertheless, there's still 101 more things that the government and regulators across the board could and should do, according to Cullen, to really fix things, not necessarily needing to do them all. We have no clue how much they're going to cost, but here's the start of at least his view on what we should do. And the big banner headline recommendation out of this, because you get into 101 recommendations in a very technical public inquiry report, and it's easy to get lost. But the headline one is to launch a new money laundering commissioner and investigation and intelligence unit to oversee the whole of government response to this. And then from there, there would be a number of new penalties and tools. The Cullen report goes really strongly for more aggressive civil forfeiture, introducing unexplained wealth orders, giving more power to police in a number of other ways, more info and data sharing between policing agencies and intelligence agencies. All of this very much upset the BC Civil Liberties Association, who were an intervener in the case and got to regularly ask witnesses about the civil liberties impacts of all of these, to which there are many, including things like our unexplained wealth orders, which is if you go, oh, do you have a Scott, do you have paperwork for that giant transfer of money that came into you and how it's legitimate? And if you say, not all of it, we could just take your money. It's hard to know if all of that is constitutional. Yeah, it seems sketchy if you're uh, just taking money because of a lack of paperwork or whatever. Money laundering is bad and all, but there should be a presumption that if somebody, that someone's assets and property are rightfully theirs unless the state can prove otherwise like this goes as far as to say like the civil asset forfeiture office needs to no longer be focused as a self-sustaining agency where they only pursue cases that they use to fund themselves it should i think it goes as far as to say it should be pulling in so much money that it's a source of revenue for government, which seems also dealt problematic. Yeah, you know how like photo radar is hated because it's just like a cash cow or viewed as a cash cow by many I was actually gonna, for police agencies. The analogy I was actually going to go with was was it Ferguson, where after the issues in 2014, there one of the things that came out was that a lot of their municipal revenue was 
acquired through ticketing, which targeted minorities in the uh, the city there, and was yeah grossly disproportionately applied and whatnot. And it's not necessarily certain that would happen here, but that's a big risk. And using criminal asset forfeiture or ticketing or using basically legal compliance and enforcement as a revenue generator rather than as a ensure people are complying with the law system tends to create a lot of very bad incentives within a government. And yeah, I would be extremely skeptical of that as a, we're explicitly doing this as a revenue generator. There's a lot of other reforms recommended in there to lawyers, notaries, the government, the lottery commission, realtors. I think there was slightly less to lawyers. It didn't want to mess with legal oversight, even though it recognized that lawyers and accountants have a lot of there was things to answer for in their enabling of certain money laundering schemes. Well, see, it starts at 53 and goes all the way up to... Recommendation 65 for things that apply to lawyers. So that's a decent number. Fair enough. It also recommends a beneficial ownership registry. Uh, I believe this is something it's that in process. government has started doing. Yeah, at least for land and property. So lots in there. I think one of the things that a lot of people were pulling out as particularly of note was on housing affordability. And so coming back to the racism question, Cullen does devote some part of his report to flagging that as many people raised at the commission, there is a very racist element to the concerns that are being flagged around money laundering. That's not to say money laundering hasn't been happening. It obviously has, but just the tie, the connections to Chinese money laundering has had knock-on effects in our society. And he calls that out, including around the real estate discussions. But Scott, has money laundering, is that the cause of why houses are so expensive? I'm reading from the report here. Money laundering is not the catalyst of housing unaffordability. So, no. He looks at it closely, goes over some of the, a bunch of the submissions and what can be stated on them, basically says, I can't find evidence that this has caused the real estate situation BC finds itself in, and it's at most a small contributor to the broader housing unaffordability. He cites to a study that or a report that was done by several economists as part of a look at the potential impact of money laundering in the province. Its estimates was in the low to high single digit percentage range, like up to 7%, I think, but the median estimate being a bit lower than that closer to three or five percent and even then he says that's pro that's probably an overestimate and he can't necessarily find evidence himself that that gets up to that upper end of the estimate and his takeaway is basically we should fight money laundering because money laundering's bad not as a housing affordability strategy yeah seems reasonable and it's what many people were saying as the report launched, I think it's what you definitely have said, and I've probably said similar things. No, yeah, it's not many people are fans of money laundering, pretty much just the people doing it. Yeah, so he 
he says that the housing unaffordability is the same thing that always gets cited by experts when they talk about this, namely lack of supply, high demand to live in the region, low interest rate, all the fundamental factors that have been contributing to real estate growth forever, or at least over the last couple decades. Indeed. I don't think this is actually going to satisfy the people who were out really hawking this as an explanation. On there, no, I literally saw it just before we started recording a noted Twitter type who we don't need to name saying that people like real estate developers and Yimby people are misrepresenting it because absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And it's, dude, you screenshot a part where it literally says at the top money laundering is not the cause of housing affordability, unaffordability. And like, you can cherry pick that fine, just like he's made a they've made a religion out of this right yeah and that's fine if you want to have a religion if you want to believe in a deity and a god that's your right but let's keep it out of policy that's my view yeah and uh, pretty staunch secularist yeah i'll just note that uh, yeah a lot of the people who were citing foreign investing as a primary driver when that completely dried up in 2020 when we shut the borders to everything at the start of the pandemic, without missing a beat, it, the, the rationale just switched over from that to central banks without a real look at, okay, or could the explanation here be something more fundamental in terms of the structure of the market here rather than nefarious outside actors? And it, it didn't convince anyone at the time. So I expect we'll see a similar thing play out here, which is unfortunate because housing unaffordability is a real problem in the region and it would sure be nice if we could all start from the same basic set of facts and figure out how we're going to fix it from there well, let's come back to the broad overview of the report ian mulgrew in the vancouver sun had a piece out and i got flagged this from people inside the bccla uh it mulgrew doesn't quote anyone from the civil liberties association but i think his arguments follow along the same route in many ways that he calls it an enormous opportunity missed and basically flags it like, it breaks no new ground, quote, it tells us little about why the scandal happened. It fails to provide the tools for holding anyone accountable should it happen again. He says no one knows how much funding the 101 recommendations might require to produce a cure, either the price in dollars or the cost in civil liberties. And he spends a long time on that question of like, why is the focus on giving more money and beefing up law enforcement agencies that we just saw fail in this and we've seen in a number of other cases like we just talked about the police commission or the police act reform uh, committee's report highlighting a number of needs to change policing fundamentally in bc and cullen for cullen to come back and just say we just need to triple down on policing in this seems out of step with a broader conversation going in like what Mulgrew highlights in and what the BCCLA have argued is money is not that money laundering isn't a problem, but that it stems from broader activities. Like people aren't just laundering money for the fun of it. They're laundering it to traffic illicit drugs. How do we deal with illicit drugs? We deal with the drug crisis by talking about decriminalization and tackling broader systemic issues rather than continuing to go down this war on x y or z kind of yeah but like prime approach at the same time there's like, you can't just decriminalize a way to zero 
money laundering, like there's white collar crime, fraud, all of these other things that are not necessarily born out of the war on drugs or people in the most desperate of economic circumstances. Some people just do crime for other reasons and launder the assets from that. And you'll still need a police force or some sort of law enforcement agency to deal with those sorts of things. So like the not solve this with like police have to be a part of this. Now we should have better, more effective police on this, but there isn't really a practical solution where they're not a significant part of it. It's where I'm sympathetic to the idea of reinvesting or taking investments that we already have and redirecting them towards those specialized task force that used to exist that apparently they just cut a number of years ago and a number of people flagged that as an issue at the time or in the intervening years. It's, I think the big flag here is just like, why are we talking about so many new powers that seem unproven, like the unexplained wealth orders, the increase in civil asset for orfeiture, when those raise a host of other concerns that we've touched on. and Yeah, like a, more resources into investigating and prosecuting this, and then maybe not as a civil asset forfeiture, but a criminal asset forfeiture after proven in a court of law that these are criminally acquired assets beyond a reasonable doubt, that starts to look a lot more reasonable. Uh, as how to approach it. They, it's a big part yeah, of the problem I've learned from our civil asset forfeitures that it has to meet civil law standards, which tend to be a significantly lower bar than beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. I've learned from our country's stance on foreign policy that we care about the rule of law and I want them to prove it. So, like overall, I am at least not embarrassed by this public inquiry in the way that Albertans should be about the one they did into anti-Albertan activities. That thing was a friggin' mess that got delayed because they didn't know how to find the answer they were looking for. This one got delayed initially, I think, because it was a larger scope of work than predicted, and then everyone on involved got COVID. I think they also just did a, a delay just because COVID early on. On right. that as well, yeah. not because the commissioners got COVID. That was the most recent delay, but just we're now have to move this virtual. We're trying to give them a little extra time on that as well, I believe. Yeah, which are reasonable enough delays. Yeah, and so anyway, to take a twenty thousand foot political view of this, it is I think noteworthy that for all the attention this got for years, both in the final days of the Clark government and then basically the entire NDP's time in office, that this seems surprisingly unimpactful after all of it. And there's Rich Coleman doesn't look great out of this, but his reputation was exactly great before this either. So it, there doesn't really seem to be a big political win for anyone coming out of this or anything that's really, I think, fundamentally going to shake things up from how they were before. Indeed, like the BC Liberals don't come off great in this, but they could have come off much worse. 
And luckily for them, Kevin Falcon doesn't appear in the entire document. I just pulled it up and did a search for Falcon. The word Falcon does appear in a section on page 106 under wildlife crime. Probably not. And it the says, same although, Falcon. yeah. Although wildlife crime was assessed as having a low money laundering risk, an illicit market for certain types of Canadian species, including narwhal tusks, polar bear hides, peregrine falcon eggs, and wild ginseng exists. And black market prices for these species are high and have risen in recent years. Yeah, just be careful of people marketing peregrine falcon eggs. I don't think that'll have an impact on the next election, though. No, not at all. The political landscape has changed just because of COVID, too. Like, I don't in the same way that we're not really thinking about the, or we weren't really thinking still about the wood chipper and the legislative expense scandals as those verdicts dropped, this coming out is like a, oh yeah, that was a thing we cared about before COVID, wasn't it? And maybe if there hadn't been a pandemic, we would have still been eagerly awaiting this, or maybe it just took so long that people got bored and moved on. But here we are with an 1800-page report that I guess we'll have to see how much the government actually moves on this. Like I said, if it costs a lot of monies and gets a lot of pushback, particularly on some of the more controversial stuff around civil liberties, it might be a partial, sh some of it might be left on the shelf. Yeah, I expect we'll see a bunch of these recommendations followed through on, but yeah, for the reasons you mentioned it, would not surprise me at all if maybe not all 101 of these end up being implemented at the end of the day. Let's jump into our quick takes and let's start with a roundup of federal boondoggles. It's boondoggle it's if it's a just an error in judgment rather than a project ballooning out of control. All right, fine. It's a bunch of federal liberal self-own goals. Actually, most most of our quick takes today are own goals. So that'll be the theme of the rest of the show. Let's start with Russian parties. What happened, Scott? Yeah, this past Friday, uh, senior member of the government, Yasmin Heinbacher, the Global Affairs Deputy Chief of Protocol, went to one of the embassies in Ottawa to celebrate that country's big national day, which normally is the sort of thing that wouldn't be such a big deal, except the embassy in question happened to be the Russian one celebrating Russia Day. And as everybody in the government has been saying since at least February 24th, it is very important to isolate, diplomatically isolate the country that is currently engaged in a war of aggression and conquest against a peaceful democracy. Uh, apparently, that sort of very obvious logic didn't really click within global affairs, and the senior individual, the deputy chief protocol, went and attended. That got reported out pretty shortly after, Pretty much the entire country, and particularly various Ukrainian-Canadian groups, were pretty shocked and pissed about the whole thing, leading to Minister Jolie saying Sunday night, that's unacceptable, no Canadian representative should have attended the event hosted at the Russian embassy, and no Canadian 
representative will attend this kind of event again. Canada continues to stand with Ukraine as it fights against Russia's egregious invasion, which I guess hits several of the right notes. It did come across to me as a little too eager to not take the responsibility that a minister ultimately should for the actions of their department. But then, subsequently, the Globe and Mail, speaking with a couple different senior government sources, uh, found out that Minister Jolie's office was, in fact, informed that the Deputy Chief of Protocol was planning on attending the celebrations at the Russian Embassy. So, I struggle to care about this story. Like, the initial scandal was dumb. I can see how it happened. Chief of Protocol probably goes to every dumb party and going or not going doesn't really make the difference in whether Russia will continue to fight Ukraine or not. We're not technically at war, so maybe there's a hard rule about we don't go to people we're in open combat with or something like that. And because that wasn't in the thing, like, whatever, fine. It was a mistake. Someone should have said sorry. The the Jolie condemning it, but then apparently knowing about it is where a little bit more scandal comes in because it seems like she's trying to mislead the public a bit with her outrage. Even there, that's pretty typical liberal bullshit these days. I'm just getting tired of it. And we have four more stories of this to go. Yeah. Uh, the damage control on this was not good. Yeah, I think it does reveal some problems within how global affairs actually sees the world and maybe puts them, I think, offside where the vast bulk of Canadians are on this stuff and maybe a little too eager to go back to business as normal. Like This is the sort of thing that anyone with even a shred of wisdom or just common sense should have been able to see was a bad idea. And it's not great that that didn't get played within the civil service before it made it up to the minister's office and nobody in the minister's office saw something that should have been a giant red flag when they were told this. I'm just hoping at some point our country or any country comes forward with a plan to actually end the war because I've never seen anyone move for that other than just if we hurt Russians enough, they'll stop. But I guess we can keep hoping. Let's move over to the other crisis of the recent era, and that was the invocation of the Emergencies Act to clear the blockades out of Ottawa. The parliamentary committee that is triggered by the invocation of the Emergencies Act has been hearing for several months from ministers and those involved, trying to get straight answers on how did this happen, whose idea was it, what happened during it, Why all did that it need kind to be of thing. Is really the core of this. Yeah, and one of the problems that arose was back in April, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino was before the committee, and he said the police acted. He said that the police asked for the government to invoke the act. He said the advice we received was for was to invoke the Emergencies Act. That made a lot of people angry and confused because, for example, the 
RCMP and Ottawa police said no, we didn't ask for it. And soon Marco Mendicino's deputy minister said, oh, you sorry, you misunderstood what he was saying. It's unclear what he was saying. But now also senior minister of uh, senior ministers Bill Blair and Christian Freeland have both also said it was not the police's idea to invoke the Emergencies Act. And so once again, we're seeing foot and mouth disease really spread like COVID through the Liberal cabinet. Yeah, and it's a big deal when a minister misleads parliament, as it seems like Marco Mendicino did here. There's Functionally, the whole point of having a system of responsible government is that the ministers are responsible to the elected parliament and have to answer to them. And that doesn't work if they're not truthful about it. And ministers in the past have resigned for lying to parliament. So it's if Marco Manichino did mislead parliament, it's a resignable offense or in the or if Trudeau fires him, a fireable offense on that. And it raises some pretty big questions. Like the Emergencies Act was, I think, described at the time as the nuclear option. Like it's the, it is a big, in case of emergencies, break glass sort of thing. And it's real important that we don't set a precedent on this where it just gets used for matters of minor inconveniences and that there's a pressing need for it. And that wasn't there, I think that raises some pretty serious questions about why it was invoked in the first place, because like, it honestly probably didn't need to be. There was nothing that the police couldn't have done before that, and that's its own set of problems, which we spoke at length about at the time. The government did use it when they shouldn't have. That's, that is also very concerning. I get what his deputy minister is trying to imply with the phrase he used as the advice we received was to invoke the Emergencies Act. And maybe you're like, oh, that's like a passive voice. Who's the advice from? I pulled up on Open Parliament quickly just the transcript from the committee at that time because it was easy to find because I had that direct quote. And he says, I'll just read the one paragraph. The government remained engaged with law enforcement throughout to ensure they had the support and resources they needed. However, when efforts using existing authorities proved ineffective, the advice we received was to invoke the Emergencies Act. At all times, we were guided by a simple principle of limited use. Put simply, when it came to Emergencies Act, we were reluctant to invoke and eager to revoke. And he speaks in the paragraphs before and after about law enforcement and law enforcement the communication struggling ministers and, and law enforcement yeah. and yeah and so to me that sure sounds like he's saying law enforcement asked for this but maybe he misspoke without fully intending to even though that was an opening statement so he could have easily written it it's embarrassing it's bad but not just embarrassing obviously let's see see how the committee goes in the piece we'll put in the show notes it talks about how Opposition members were extremely frustrated by Christopher Freeland refusing to answer simple questions around things like, were notes taken during specific calls in the lead up to the invocation? And she didn't give a straight answer to that. Cool. We're getting the standard kind of filibustering and waste of time from the government on this. It's really amazing to watch them like slow walk themselves into another scandal yeah especially because 
they were so clearly on the right side of public opinion at the time. And if they just turned out to have fumbled this thing so badly, both how they came about to the decision to invoke it and then the subsequent T-crossing and I-dotting that needs to be done afterwards with the committee, that's that's going to be, a, like I said, a massive own goal on that one. And I guess the question that will be outstanding, but we probably won't actually get to dig in, or the parliament won't actually dig into this as much, is how much did the NDP know? And, like, their best case scenario is a naive, like, optimism that the government knew best and they just trusted. Now, whether they should have or not, they they probably shouldn't have. Obviously, we agree on that. But, like, they could at least have some plausible deniability that they assumed the government was telling the truth and had no other option. And so, they were willing to support that. If they knew more that it was a mess, that would be bad for them. So, hopefully, let's see if Singh and the NDP can keep themselves out of this dumpster fire of a decision that the Liberals made. Uh, Speaking of, we're fast-tracking the end of committee debates as the online streaming bill is rushing towards reality. Yeah. C11, which has been in the news, and we're planning on doing a deep dive in the next week or two and actually looking at what's in it. Uh, We didn't manage to get that lined up for today, but this has been a rather controversial bit of bill of legislation that it's actually its second kick at the can now after it got fumbled so badly by Stephen Gabot, who was the heritage minister at the time that it, they basically had to pull it. And there's a reason he's no longer in that particular portfolio. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a big and controversial bill, particularly because it's not clear where the, lines are on where it applies to which sorts of users of and content producers of social media would get caught up in it it's in theory could even apply to this podcast and it we have to start doing more canadian content scott <laughs> yeah i think we probably meet the canton requirements but like one of the problems with the canton requirements in there is that a lot of the new media or streaming services and whatnot have to pay into it but aren't getting necessarily able to receive the subsidies out from the canton system and fundamentally it seems like a giant problem with this bill is that it's premised on the flawed assumption that streaming is basically just broadcasting over the internet and it's not that at all but that's that's a deep dive for a later episode but yeah in this case parliament took a rather unusual motion of actually ending committee debate on a bill which is not all that common and as a result many of the proposed changes aren't going to end up being read into the public record although the MPs on committee will have access to the written forms of those and it's just I think unfortunate that something of this magnitude is being rushed through when it is potentially very consequential stream services are one of the main ways people interact with media entertainment and whatnot and it's important to get this right and it's unfortunate that both the liberals and ndp don't really seem to want to make sure we do this right and are fine rushing it through the block is also fine rushing it through to be fair (laughs) that doesn't really help 
but yeah, the block is also supporting moving this bill through. I am hopeful that the Senate will be pretty strong on this. The Senate sometimes flexes itself and it sounds like the government is saying they're not going to try and push the Senate too hard on this to finish before summer, which also begs the question of why rush it through the House now. Yeah, yeah. Pablo Rodriguez, the heritage minister, says it's important that this gets done and that they can't wait, but sure they can wait. Stuff like YouTube's been around for over a decade. Netflix, I think, similar length of time. Like, this is not a new situation. We can... Like, if the liberals... In terms of the liberals' priorities, like, online streaming stuff, yeah, it's important and getting it right is important. But in terms of the harms that are caused by not moving this forward, if they're going to talk about all the bills they're talking about, they're talking about online harms bills that will end the hate speech on the internet. They'll talk about their firearms bills. And we can disagree with those bills, but if you take the liberals at their word that those are meant to prevent radicalization and gun deaths, those seem more pressing than making sure Canadian creators get their fair share on the YouTube algorithm. Yeah, there's just just nothing that's really going to be that badly affected if they take another six months to get this right and come back after the summer recess on this at all. Maybe they just don't want to fight over it all summer. It's silly. It's the, This is the sort of dumb politics that makes people cynical about politics, which is unfortunate. And the worst part about this, and we'll dig into it more, is just like how poor the comms on this bill and the preceding version of it have been from the government because they they come out and say the bill will do this or not do that. And then legal analysts go through and go, that doesn't track with the words you've written in this bill. And you can say the regulations will or won't apply in this way, but you could spell that out a little more clearly. And the liberals don't seem to be taking those good faith criticisms from many sides. Like this isn't just conservatives yelling about it. There are a lot of people across the spectrum in academia who are expressing concerns and it's just silence. Like this isn't the internet censorship bill that I think the fringe the right-wing fringe is screaming about, but it's also just not a good bill, it seems in my mind. But maybe I'll be convinced when we dig into it more. Yeah, I'm definitely not sold on this one. And a large part of that, from what I, the bits I have read, is that it's, it fundamentally is trying to treat streaming as just an extension of broadcast television whatnot. And like the internet is just so different that you'd have to, start almost start from the ground up and not try and pledge it into an existing framework from 60 years ago or whenever the original broadcast act was done actually probably what like 70 years i don't know whenever the original broadcast act was done well and while we're talking about shoving square pegs into round holes we have a New old plan to help Canadians battered by inflation, $8.9 billion of what sounds like pre-existing commitments. In large part, yes. Classic government. The Liberals at least seem to have woke into the fact that they are 
getting absolutely hammered on the economy and that they should maybe do something, even if it's somewhat unconvincing, both on the re-announcing old stuff and how they've gone about it. So of this, about $1.7 billion are going into an enhanced standard workers' benefit, which it's a good program and it's been, it would be good. On that, also announced in the past budget, there's a 10% increase in old age security for Canadians over 75. Yes, the liberals just hate the 72-year-old seniors. On this, it's weird. Old age security eligibility starts at 65, so it's like a weird exclusion to this. Also, old age security gets adjusted four times a year for CPI, so there's already an inflation adjustment built into the program, which makes you wonder why you need an extra 10% of the things already inflation adjusted at a surprisingly regular interval. I would have actually guessed maybe once a year they would look at it. Uh, as well as a one-time $500 payment to nearly 1 million low-income renters. So it turns out you can actually do a renter's rebate. So the BC NDP will be no doubt shocked to hear this as they have apparently been struggling for years to figure out how to do one in BC. And this one's income targeted. The other things I just pulled up the press release itself are like literal pre-announcements. The childcare deals is flagged. That is some, they're still trying to ride that one, eh? <laughs> given that my childcare is 1500 given that my childcare is $1,520 a month because not both of us are working right now, Scott. I could stand to use some cuts on that, but at least that's not rising with inflation right now. They are also talking about the dental care is going to be one of the things that helps. Who knows when that's coming in? We have no additional details. And that some other benefits like the Canada Child Benefit that I get are indexed to inflation. So you'll get that. It fixes itself. Yeah, there's a lot of programs that are indexed to inflation, which is good, but... You maybe don't need to announce them as an inflation response. <laughs> Just a reminder, inflation also means you'll get a bigger check this month is what they're saying. Or not necessarily this month, but one, once the trigger happens, like you said, which is thankfully a little bit more frequent than every four years. Yeah. So It's not the worst set of things, although I'm, it's nothing new. It's so not, it's it's like not much new. And beyond that... Inflation is mostly targeted, or mo sorry, so beyond that, like inflation's mostly caused by the various supply chain challenges, the food and fuel shortage that's resulted from the war in Eastern Europe. Like the, there's a bunch of stuff, and like it's hard for the government to control some of those. But at the same time, if you have a case where there is already a pretty high inflation situation pumping more money into the economy is on the margin going to push inflation up rather than down so there it may be a slightly pyrrhic victory on this one and like it's better I mean, that's a bit disputed since this is pretty targeted money at the lowest income people who aren't buying the highest inflationary pressure like it's better than just uh, things sending out a $500 check to anyone, but like the, the money will circulate through the economy. Multipliers work, not just on stimulus as well. And at least with the old age security, like the eligibility goes pretty far up the income ladder before it gets completely cut back to zero. 
on that. It's $8 billion isn't a huge thing in the grand scheme of things, but if you're really serious about tackling inflation, it's not an expansive fiscal position policy is not necessarily going to be the way that leads to good results in that unless it's very well targeted at removing the bottlenecks that are causing inflation right now. On the federal NDP and BC Greens have both been on a track recently of targeting those benefiting the most in these times with like excess windfall taxes and using that to fund additional programs like this and I can see why those are very populist and but in a case where you actually have I imagine if you inflation pull, it would do a well. that could potentially pull out some of the the money that's causing the mismatch between money supply and demand and the availability demand money supply and the availability of goods might actually have the effect of clamping down a bit on that so I yeah, it would actually make sense as a potential inflation measure on that. Probably still and it'd on be the hella margin. popular. <laughs> and it'd be hella popular. <laughs> Who hates the idea of taking money from like the Sobies when they're posting record profits or the oil companies? The government of Alberta would hate it, but and like the few billionaires, but tax taxing people who are wealthier than you is usually a popular move. But yeah, the liberals don't seem eager to do that. But in terms of popularity, let's talk about the premier's Angus Reid has its monthly, its regular, I don't know actually how often they do this, premier approval ratings. And it's a little bit interesting across the board. Yeah, I think the big news that caught people's attention here in BC was that Horgan's down seven points and is now below 50% on the approval rating. Most premiers are getting battered a bit. Legault is similarly down. The biggest absolute drop was Houston out in Nova Scotia, though he started from such a high place that dropping 11 points only brings him down to 62% approval. Yeah. Kenny's oddly up to, Still, which yeah. I'm guessing is probably margin of error or the fact that uh, you have a bit of a rearview mirror effect going on. But people are happy that he quit. He is officially on the way out. Yeah, the numbers for Tim Houston, Scott Moe, John Horgan, Doug Ford, and even Francois Legault, all at 44 45% and above, are ones most premiers in general in Canada for the last few decades would be pretty happy with. If you're Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick sitting at 33%, or What's-Her-Face Stephenson in Manitoba, apologies, at 23%, you might be looking for new work soon. It's a bad trend line for Horgan, but he has started from pretty high. And what I think is interesting here is we're seeing movement finally after people sat in pretty comfortable positions throughout the pandemic, other than Kenny, who mismanaged that province from every side. Yeah, and the Horgan and his government seem to have lost the step a bit on their political shrewdness, it seems like, and they're, they are making more mistakes that they wouldn't have made in the early days. And I think that is starting to take its toll. And the museum's the biggest one, but uh, yeah, you're starting to get the sense that the, I don't really want to say the shine's worn off, because that seems to have happened a while. The, the, there's cracks in the armor. On the museum, Angus Reid did ask about that in a few different ways. They asked how many people are following it. About two-thirds of British Columbians said 
moderately to very in-depthly, and they asked, do you support the plan to build the museum? They gave a bit of background on it, and 42% are strongly opposed and 27% are opposed versus 4% are strongly supportive and 18% are just supportive. So, 22%, I think that is, like the idea, and 69 hate it. Just great numbers for yeah, the it, government it, there. This is just an, a rough spot all around for the project on this one. And we were wondering a bit how much impact this would have. And yeah, it's a case where there is pretty much across the board disapproval. If you look at the cross tabs on that, like every demographic from vote intent, past vote, region, gender, age, education, they all come out on net much more strongly opposed than not which makes the yeah means it's going to be a quite a challenging time to rejig this does it it's but yeah university educated people probably on average are going to appreciate museums more than not and they do they like it a little bit or they hate it a little bit less yeah. than those without a college or without but high even, school even that's 59 to 31 percent on that like just the skew in pretty much every way just is not great and like the liberals are more angry than ndp supporters but yeah no one's super happy i guess what this poll doesn't probe and what you couldn't really ask honestly that effectively is but do you act but how much do you actually care and if, even if you ask that people would probably say they care a lot but Will it move votes is an undecided question. They did ask vote intent. The BC NDP is still at 42% over, or the BC NDP is at 42%, 11 points above the Liberals at 31%. The Liberals have been at 31, 29 to 31% in Angus Reid all of 2022. The NDP is maybe down a couple points. If you look back far enough, like in June 2021, the NDP was at 50%, the Liberals were at 24%. So, there is like a trend line from there. But they can all convince themselves it's within margin of error as well. And I think we'll still need to see more before we decide if this is a trend or a blip. Yeah, it does point to, I think, a, a big potential weakness they've opened up here. And we can't know for sure, but it's rarely the case that any one thing is the thing that ultimately shifts votes but it just becomes part of the general sense like you would be hard pressed to like point to a thing that really cost the past government the votes they needed to win it's more kind of the steady drip of this and that's where this stuff really hurts like we talked last week about the schools that didn't get their upgrades or the new schools that aren't getting built because there's a lack of capital funds and <sighs> It's the sort of thing when you look at, okay, they're not doing the things that actually like really make a difference in my life, but they're doing this. That's the sort of thing that really starts to hurt, as well as other missteps around that. It's a bad look when the government has to cut school funding and expansions because they don't have the funds. It's also not a super great look when the one school they announce that they are funding within a week after they cut all these other ones is in... John Horgan's writing where they just announced a $40 million South Laneford Elementary School. It does come across a little bit like, okay, if you're in the Premier's writing, you're getting your capital projects. If you're in Olympic Village or 
mission or any of these other places good luck with that and it's i think goes to a broader thing i'm starting to see is that it seems like the uh the shrewdness of the ndv politically is starting to wane and there may be a a bit of government itis setting in and there's no longer that person sticking up their hand in the meeting going are we sure about this is this not going to make us look bad i still think it's a matter more that the comms on the museum rollout was bad rather than it was necessarily the wrong idea like the plan has been in work for quite a while and it's not like they were just going to axe it in favor of not doing anything which was apparently the most popular choice but only because i think it was the cheapest labeled but this week we also saw that vancouver was awarded the fifa 2026 at, to get or at least to get to host some of the world cup there and quietly they slip in there that about a quarter of a million dollars will end up costing the province to host f- up around five or six games it's not a clear how many we're getting i think it's five pre-match games and possibly some that are part of the official world cup schedule and it's are we going to see outrage over that expense to the same extent especially because <laughs> bc place just put artificial or new artificial turf in that they have to rip out within the next four years to put grass in to meet FIFA standards. My favorite part of the whole FIFA thing, though, is just how badly the government of Alberta fucked it up because they demanded that Alberta, that Edmonton host at least five of the 10 games Canada was going to (laughs) get and also two of the like round 32 or 16 knockout games. And FIFA was just like, no, (laughs) you suck at negotiating. (laughs) Go away, Alberta. So... We get the World Cup after we walked away a few years ago, but now they are apparently less bad. Cool. I'm, I'm not a soccer fan, but yeah, good idea. I mean, it would be nice to see more stuff happen in the city. I'm disappointed the, uh, the Formula E thing that was going to be happening this summer got canceled. And I'm not even a car guy, but it would have been it would have been cool to have that event here. And yeah, just uh, yeah, Vancouver has the no fun city reputation. It would be nice to actually have a little more fun things happening in the city even if they're not necessarily my sport of choice. Should we just cut everything yeah, else? Yeah, cut from there. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.